One of the things about the PhD, and perhaps this is one of the most exciting things for me, is probably the first time that I came to understand that there was a body of literature that was developing very, very quickly around creative research, around artistic research. I spent some time over the last few days just looking at the bibliography for the PhD, and it strikes me that there are four, probably more, but there are four really key texts for me that started my really excitement about understanding that there were people writing about this and developing a language for the hunches, the experiences that I was having. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to David Andrew, an Associate Professor in the Department of Fine Arts in the Witt School of Arts. David has served as both Head of Fine Arts Department and Deputy Head of the School. He studied for his BA Fine Arts at the University of Natal, now University of KwaZulu-Natal, and earned his PhD at Witt's with a research project entitled The Artist's Sensibility and Multimodality classrooms as works of art. David is a practicing artist and lectures in fine arts and arts education courses at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels at WITS. His interest in the artist-teacher relationship has led to a number of projects aimed at researching, designing and implementing alternative paths for the training of arts educators and artists working in schools. Notably, his joint coordination of the Curriculum Development Project Trust, WITS School of Arts Partnership, that developed the Advanced Certificate in Education, Arts and Culture, and the Artists in Schools and Community Arts Centres programs. His current research interests include the tracking of histories of arts education in South Africa and Southern Africa more broadly, the Another Roadmap School Africa Cluster research project, together with researchers in Cairo, Harare, Kampala, Kinshasa, Johannesburg, Lagos, Lumbumbashi, Masiru, and Nzana, the on-location research project with the Kunstfakt University College of Arts, Craft and Design in Stockholm, Sweden, and the reimagining of the art school, arts pedagogies, and artistic research in the context of the Global South. In March 2017, he co-convened the Art Search International Symposium on Artistic Research in Johannesburg. He has presented at numerous conferences, including the INSEA Conference in Budapest, Hungary, and the Arts and Society Conference, also in Budapest, and the Arts Research Africa International Conferences in Johannesburg in 2020 and 2022. In May 2013, he was invited to attend the World Summit for Arts Education in Munich and Wilbad Krieth in Germany. In this dialogue, David and I focus on the relationship between arts pedagogies and artistic research, looking at his background as an arts teacher, the formative influence of his education in both South Africa and Swaziland, now Swatini during the apartheid period, the way that he sought to bring the concept of the artist's sensibility into both arts education and research, and his own work as a researcher and supervisor of postgraduate artistic research. David, welcome. It's been a long time that I've wanted to sit down and talk to you, and great that you're here. So let's get straight into it. And to start out, I'd like to ask you, how did you come to art 
and to teaching art in particular, since that has been such a strong focus of your practice and your work in the area of artistic research. Christo, thanks very much. And before I go into responding to that question, just to express my thanks to you for the invitation. It's really good to be part of the Arts Research Africa podcast series. I'm gradually wending my way through them. And it's a really interesting, substantial body of work that has been produced. So I'm really pleased to be here. So going to the question, and if I may, I'd like to spend some time responding to this question, because in many senses, it goes to one of the key areas that I'm interested in and have been interested in for some time, certainly over the last decade and more, and that is looking at histories of arts education and trying to respond to the question of how we come to teach the arts as, as we do teach them. And here I'm interested in imported models of arts education, traveling concepts of arts education, but equally so individual histories of arts education. And in fact, when I was teaching on the postgraduate certificate of education course, the shared course between the Witt School of Arts and the Witt School of Education, our first session would start with a very similar question where we looked at personal histories of arts education. So in a sense, that's what I'll be doing. So how did I come to art? How did I come to my interest in what I refer to as that nexus between arts pedagogies and arts practice? And I'd like to take you right back. I mean, I think I, I grew up in a family that was always supportive of me being involved in the arts. My parents were both teachers, so they were in education. My mother was primarily a music teacher, and my father taught a whole range of subjects, but one of them was English literature and language, and he himself is a writer, a poet, published plays and short stories and so forth. So there's that supportive environment. And I had what is a privileged access to schooling, going to Morris Brothers School in Peter Maritzburg, where the visual arts was a subject from Standard 4. And I remember being interested in this subject from my, my very, very early years, where I was at preschool, when I was at a, a Dominican convent. And I remember that a large part of the curriculum that we had, I, I always vividly remember it as being centered around creativity. But I think a pivotal moment for me was when my parents decided to accept positions at a school in what was Swaziland, now Eswatini. The school's called Waterford Kamplaba. That was in 1974. And the whole family moved to this school campus, which is just outside the capital in Baban. It's a school that was established in 1963, so we arrived there just after the first decade of the school. It's an extraordinary school. It still is an extraordinary school, and the campus was designed by the, the architect Pancho Gedge, who has a strong affiliation with Witts University's architecture department, but also someone who's designed many buildings in Mozambique and Maputo especially, but also in parts of Johannesburg. So it was about going into a very particular kind of aesthetic environment in many ways, where the spaces of living were shaped in particular ways that I'd never experienced before. There was a very, very keen support in the school for cultural activities, drama, music, art as subjects in the curriculum, but also a very, very strong extracurricular program as well. Politically, it was also a very interesting school at that time because many of the children of ANC leaders in exile or in detention were at the school. 
And, you know, at any given time, the student body, the staff body was made up of people from particularly the, the static region, but from all parts of the world. So it was a very, very different kind of environment to the one that I'd experienced in South Africa, in Kinemaritzburg. And I think one of the reasons why my parents accepted these positions was to give their children, there were five of us, an opportunity to experience a teaching and learning environment outside of the apartheid education system. So I spent three years there, 74 to 76. I didn't finish my schooling there for a number of different reasons that I won't go into. But that is a very, very powerful, formative experience for me. And I think there I started to experience the value of the arts in a very, very intense way, where there was very little hierarchy between, say, for instance, the science subjects and the more artistically-based, humanities-based subjects. There's a real sense of all of them being uh, really important. I think also what was very clear there on the part of the staff and the students was that the arts had a very strong role to play in terms of social justice. And that is something that was very, very marked for me. But then, as I said earlier, in I think it was about September 76, so you know, shortly after the student uprising of 76, which impacted the school very, very strongly, I went back to Maritzburg with some of my siblings, my mother, and I went into a school that was perhaps diametrically opposed, perhaps the exact antithesis to Waterford Kamplava, and that was Maritzburg College, which it's renowned as a really important school in South Africa, and I would agree with that. But the ethos, the values were very, very different. I think that the colonial presence it's very much part of what the school stood for. I think that a particular level of, kind of masculinity was present in the school. I think it was cultivated very strongly. And even though it was an English medium school, I think it was highly militarized with cadets, so on and so forth. Certainly maths, the sciences and Latin were seen as very, very important subjects, but perhaps even more important than that was rugby. Um, and other sports. So yeah, I mean, I think you're very, very aware of that kind of environment. But I think that kind of stark contrast was something that was kind of very marked and it, it made a huge impression on me. Having said that, there, there was a visual arts department at the school. It was a very small senior art group. I think when I was in the equivalent of grade 12, I think there were four or five students in that class. But it was a recently refurbished arts room and there were resources, there were materials and I made full use of that, of those opportunities. I think that what I'm saying here is that there's this contrast of how the arts can start to do something in a manner which is interrogative, which opens up spaces, which is critical. And then just as much as the visual arts program that I experienced at Maritzburg College was in many senses a very strong one. As I've come to look at various models of arts education, I understand to what extent that just as much as it wasn't perhaps directly influenced by the Christian national education fundamental pedagogics structure, it was a very inward-looking, very Eurocentric, very, very, I'm going to use the word, stultifying understanding of what the arts might do. And that's not to say that I didn't benefit from it. You know, it's not to say that it didn't have its particular strengths. But looking back on that time, 
I had the opportunity to really, really think through how arts education might be different. And I think even at that stage, I was aware of this difference. That awareness uh, became stronger and stronger over the next few years. My tertiary experience of the arts was at the University of Natal, now the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Peter Maritzburg campus. I did my fine arts degree there from 1982 to 1985. Again, I think it's a very strong program, a good grouping of lecturers, but again, quite a Eurocentrically driven program in terms of the history of art and in terms of the, the disciplinary nature of the fine arts department. But in many sense, I don't think it was very different from many of the fine arts experiences of that, that time. In 1986, I made the decision to leave Peter Marisburg and uh, go to Johannesburg, specifically to do my, what was then called the High Diploma of Education postgraduate. Now, I had to do this course because in order to study the four-year fine art degree, I got a Department of Education Natal bursary. And many sense it's a pity that these kind of bursaries don't exist to the extent that they did anymore. But that bursary enabled me to study the four-year fine art degree with the understanding that I'd do a fifth year to qualify as a secondary school art teacher and then to pay back that loan to teach for five years. So in 86, I was at WITS. I was in the wedge complex where the fine arts department used to be. Some of the lectures were there. The theory of education lectures were on West Campus. And I got my qualification to teach at secondary school level. And I ended up teaching at King Edward VII School, the school that borders Yeovil and Houghton, for a period of nine years, from 1987 to 1995. And I mean, my intention was to teach for five years, pay the loan back, and then uh, do something else, become an artist and work on my own practice. Something I think happened while I was uh, teaching at King Edward VII. In many respects, it was a school quite similar to the one that I'd experienced in Peter Maritzburg, Maritzburg College. But there was also a tradition of support for the visual arts program. Some well-known artists and art educators had worked there, like Bill Ainsley, Ulrich Lowe. Gavin Young was a student there, if I remember correctly. You'll be aware that William Kentridge was a student there. I mean, this is all before my time, but there was a sense of that school encouraging learners to go into the arts. So I became head of department in 19, I think it was 1989. And I think we did some really great work there with colleagues in the visual arts program to put that program on the map in Johannesburg City and in, in South Africa. And I think we, we achieved that to some extent. But I think in that time, one of the most important things, and this goes to the question, you know, how, how have you become involved in, in arts education? So, you know, I think you're getting a sense of the, the kind of formal route that I took up to that point, the late 80s. But in the late 80s, I started to make contact with a number of non-governmental organizations, particularly one called the Curriculum Development Project and also the Mbali Visual Literacy Project. And both of these uh, NGOs were doing quite extraordinary work in providing arts education opportunities for the majority of people in this country who were denied opportunities to study at tertiary institutions or to gain access to tertiary institutions. So in the late 80s, it was 
starting to change, but to all intents and purposes. The arts education was, in a formal sense, the preserve of a white elite. And I think that involvement in the NGO work started to really, really transform my sense of what arts education might be and also to start to connect to some of those experiences that I'd felt very, very, let's say, in an embodied way when I was at, at Waterford Come Clarber. And so I started to become very interested in this conversation between formal arts education and what was happening outside the universities, outside the secondary school visual arts programs. And I think in the late 80s into the 90s, I think everyone was clear about what was happening in terms of change in the country. And I became part of a group of arts educators that worked on a whole number of projects, programs, to ensure that the arts were central to what a new understanding of education in South Africa would be. Perhaps the last thing to say is that but when I joined in 1996, the position that was advertised and that I applied for was very, very specifically described as one which would be 50% in fine arts and 50% in arts education. So I would be responsible for working on the courses that students who were interested in attaining a secondary school teacher's qualification, I would work with those students. I always felt it was quite strange to be 50% arts education, 50% fine arts. Sometimes I felt that I was doing 100% fine arts and 100% arts education. But I think that it was also out of that, I'm going to use the word nexus again, that the interest in the bringing together of how the artist practices and what happens in the arts teaching and learning environment, that's where that interest continued. David, that's very interesting. Obviously, some of that I had an understanding of, but I've never heard an account putting it so clearly, particularly the, the stark contrast between Waterford and Marisburg College. Yeah, you could barely imagine two more different educational institutions at that time in Southern Africa. So then advert straddling this 50% arts education, 50% fine arts, I'm very aware that your PhD, which was about eight, ten years into your career at WITS, straddling these two different parts of, of the arts at WITS, your PhD focused on the notion of the artist's sensibility and using the artist's sensibility as a construct or a focus mechanism to challenge the conservatism that was still very much dominant in arts and culture programs across South Africa. Could you talk about how you came to that concept and elaborate on the kind of creative research that was behind your PhD? Sure. And again, thanks for that question, because I think it's something that I've reflected on. And I think the PhD that was completed in 2011 was very much about taking the opportunity to try and work through a whole number of things that I've been thinking about in relation to practice and pedagogies. Now, in addition to what I've already said, I think one of the really interesting opportunities that I had in my early time at WITS, so this is starting in the late 90s, going into the first decade of the 2000s, 
was to be part of a course called the Visual Literacy Foundation course. And this was a course that was co-taught by colleagues from fine arts, history of art, drama, to a certain extent, music. But it was an attempt at a, a very real interdisciplinary course that came into being for a whole number of reasons. One of them being to provide support for students coming into the arts degrees on an extended curriculum. The course no longer exists. I think it was last offered probably in 2003-2004, if I remember correctly. But for a period of, of five or six years, this course was made available to students on this extended curriculum. And on one hand, I think it was a really interesting example of timetabled interdisciplinarity, something that we talk about in the Vid School of Arts uh, often. At the same time, it started to attract a great deal of attention from colleagues, academics, researchers, and a number of other different departments across the Faculty of Humanities, particularly in a program that was called, at that time, Applied English Language Studies. And this is a program that was led by the late uh, Pippa Stein and other colleagues. In my role as the PGCE lecturer, so responsible for the students who wanted to get the secondary school visual arts teacher qualification, I started meeting up with a number of these colleagues. Denise Newfield was another one. And both Pippa and Denise were very, very strongly involved in an international research group that was located in the field of multiliteracies and multimodality. And Pippa and Denise formed a very, very strong research group at WITS called the WITS Multiliteracies Group. And Pippa and Denise particularly were very interested in what I was doing in the Visual Literacy Foundation course with colleagues, particularly Joni Brenner. I did a lot of work with Joni Brenner on the, the course. And they invited us to become part of um, the WITS Multiliteracies Group. So for a better part of a decade, we were strongly involved in a publication program, a conference program that enabled us to work with some of the leading scholars, thinkers in the multiliteracies and multimodality movement. And there's a lot more that can be said about that. But one of the things that really, really interested me was the manner in which what we were doing in the Visual Literacy Foundation course, where we were using arts pedagogies. So visual modes, performative modes, sonic modes, spatial modes, written mode, the spoken mode. We were using all these different modes in a way which was very different to what was present in so many other teaching and learning environments. And Pippa and Denise looked at what we were doing and observed, well, this is, in fact, multimodality in action. And, you know, as I said earlier, we worked with them for for many years on this project. Going back to the question around the PhD, I became interested in thinking through a project that would allow me to think about a reconceptualizing of the, the art room. The art rooms that I'd seen, that I'd worked in at secondary school level, but I understood that this also had significance for tertiary level education as well.
I came across this question that I still find really interesting. It's a, I suppose it's a provocation, of course. It's from Felix Guattari's book, Chaosmosis, where he asks the question, how do you make a classroom operate as a work of art? And I thought that was a really interesting question to take on. And in many senses, that was the question that came to me in the PhD again and again that I was trying to address. And the classrooms as works of art in the title of the PhD comes from that question. It struck me, and this is through observing many colleagues in the fine arts department at secondary school level, and also through a, some really, really interesting readings that I started doing in the late 90s, including the reading around multimodality. It struck me that there were what I refer to as these sensibilities, almost like a, a dispositional set that some artists had, which allowed them to work in ways with learners or students. It was very, very different to what I'd observed in so many visual arts classrooms, but classrooms more generally. So I suppose one of the arguments that was present in the uh, PhD thesis was that just as much as I was thinking about a visual arts classroom, I was also thinking about how arts-infused pedagogies might be present in the entire curriculum, what would happen. And I suppose the extension of the question, how do you make a classroom operate like a work of art, might be how do you make a school operate like a work of art. And, you know, you, you then think about an institution, and um, I'm sure that many people on hearing such a suggestion would be alarmed. I mean, one of the things that I did try and deal with in the PhD was the notions around the volatile nature of what would be. So the impetus of involvement in the multiliteracies and multimodality research and practice the opportunities to make work myself, to observe other artists' practices, but also how they worked in um, teaching and learning situations. My experience, particularly with the, the NGOs, in imagining a very, very different conception of what would happen in the classroom, what would happen in the school more broadly, allowed me to bring these threads together in this, this PhD. And to go back to the sensibility, I mean, in the end, what I tried to do is to identify a certain, I used the, the term dispositional set earlier on, that some artists, and I stress that this wouldn't be all artists, but some artists would, let's say, exhibit in working with learners or students. And I think in that respect, working at Fitz in the Fine Arts Department was an exhilarating experience because I think there were so many colleagues who, I think with art necessarily reflecting on it in the manner in which I was doing, were able to work the manners in which I was recording, reporting on, and imagining. That answers the first part of the question. The second part of the question, what kind of creative work was part of the PhD? I'm going to take a step back because my PhD exhibition took place in February, March 2009 at the Standard Bank Gallery in the downstairs section. But prior to that, I'd worked with Marcus Neustetter from 2007 to 2009 on a project where we tried to address that question, how do you make a classroom operate like a work of art? And through 
a series of negotiations, we got permission to work at a school in Dobsonville, Soweto, called PJ Simulane Secondary School. Now, PJ Simulane, it's an interesting school because it has a history of being one of the few schools in that area that offers visual arts. In fact, the art teacher at that time was a teacher done his fine arts degree at Fitz, his name was Lucas Machila. And we negotiated with Lucas and the school leadership to work as two artists in the school with teachers and with learners to try and respond to this question. And you know, the first thing we did is we began to transform the classroom space. We then moved into other spaces in the school, the library, the parking area, the spaces between classrooms, where we produced these, these interventions, some of them quite temporary, others more permanent. These interventions were negotiated with the students, with the teachers. So it became a very strong collective process. We received some funding from the Art Bank for materials, and the project allowed us to exhibit work that we produced with learners at what was the Santon Civic Gallery, also at the Goethe Institute in Parkwood. That experience with the learners, with teachers, with Marcus, in a sense was a kind of foundational experience for thinking through okay, what happens when artists are present in the classroom, which is another idea that I've worked on while I've been at WITS. At one point in the first decade of 2000s, WITS actually recognized an artist's and school's certificate of competence, a nine-month certificate of competence. It went through the academic development process, but sadly, that program was not taken up in the way by the Department of Education and what was the Department of Arts and Culture at the time. The whole idea was that they would take it and implement courses like that across the country. Going back to the work at PJ Simulani School, there were a whole lot of sculptural interventions. There were drawings, often drawings taking place in unusual places, on ceilings, on floors. We painted murals. We looked at the various structures that were present in the school and used them for various interventions. We also used the resources that were available to us at the school. I'm not sure if it's still like this in many schools across the country where there was this ubiquitous scrap heap in one part of the school grounds where all the broken chairs and desks would be piled. And in many respects, that material became the material that we used for many of the, the sculptural interventions. Going to the creative work for the, the PhD, I said earlier on that the exhibition took place in February, March 2009. In the period 2008, you will remember that the Witz Art Museum was still being planned, funds were being raised, but the space the Witz Art Museum is in was open. And I set myself up in what is now the main space of the Witz Art Museum, and I tested a whole number of possibilities for the creative work. And here, I think the notion of allowing the creative work to lead the research process and to think about how the creative process allows for a particular kind of theorizing, so theorizing through the work, theorizing through the moves that result in work, whether it's permanent or more temporary, I think was very, very present. I mean, in the space, I was testing out 
a whole number of the possibilities for the installation that I'd make for the Stanbank exhibition. The main presence in the exhibition was an installation which in many respects featured the orange chairs, the desks that one finds in so many schools in South Africa. And I think that the installation, the drawings, the small found material sculptural pieces that I produced were all about moments of thinking through how the classroom could become an artwork and what that would mean. It was also earlier in the first decade of the 2000s, I'd been on a residency in Switzerland and I'd started a body of work titled Making Sense of Small Things, Provoking the Avalanche. And I've told this story quite often, but I'll, I'll relate it again because I think it's interesting in terms of how we use moments in residencies, in spaces that are not necessarily familiar to us to generate possibilities. But in the first few days that I was in this small Swiss town in the Rhone Valley, I heard all these explosions and it was this idyllic landscape, blue sky, snow-covered mountains. And I asked one of the local people to explain why I was hearing the explosions and he spoke to me about how they are provoking the avalanche as though it was something that you know, was an everyday occurrence. So I asked him, what do you mean? So he said, well, what happens is that you have helicopters flying alongside the slopes and explosives are dropped into the snow to create the smaller avalanche, which then prevents the bigger avalanche where you'd have lots of snow building up and it becomes something more disruptive. You know, I, I thought about that moment as a metaphor for so many things that were happening at that time in 2003. But I also thought about how the notion of provoking the avalanche also has a kind of pedagogical possibility as well. That's another conversation to go into. So the creative body of work in the end was a series of drawings, including some collaborative drawings with learners from PJ Similani School, the main classroom installation, and then various sculptural pieces, mostly that utilized found objects in quite playful, open-ended ways. But the intention was to really try and use the opportunities of making, processing those embodied moments to help deepen and inflect the thinking around the questions that were coming up in relation to the classroom, the artist sensibility, and multimodality. I think that just a, a last point, one of the things about the PhD, and perhaps this is one of the most exciting things for me, is probably the first time that I came to understand that there was a body of literature that was developing very, very quickly around creative research, around artistic research. I spent some time over the last two days just looking at the bibliography for the PhD, and it strikes me that there are four, probably more, but there are four really key texts for me that started my really excitement about understanding that there were people writing about this and developing a, a, a language for the hunches, the experiences that I was having. And one of the texts was by uh, an Australian arts educator who's now based in the United States. His name's uh, Graham Sullivan. He wrote, I think, a book called Arts Practice as Research in 2005. There was James Elkin's writing around the creative PhD, which was really, really stimulating. Also, the Sarat Maharaj writing 
around what he referred to as stopgap methodologies for artistic research and the notion of know-how and know-how. I think you're very familiar with a number of these texts. The kind of things that I was reading there seemed to me that there was a really close affinity with the kind of things that I was thinking through in terms of the pedagogies practices relationship. I think at the same time, I was doing a lot of reading around dialogical and relational aesthetics, particularly Grant Kester and Nicholas Buryard's work. So there were a whole lot of these threads that I was trying to bring together. I've just remembered, I think one of the key texts that I read was by two Australian artists and artistic researchers, Estelle Barrett and Barbara Bolt. And they co-authored a book on creative research, which really struck me as being important. Yeah, Krista, I hope that that gives some sense of that PhD moment. Great. I think we could go into a lot more depth. There's all sorts of questions I'd like to ask you. But you have subsequently supervised a large number, I think probably more than anyone, adverts of creative work PhDs. And how has the actual experience and practice of curating, of supervising other people's creative work PhDs informed your thinking about autistic research and the modalities and possibilities in this sort of work? Thanks, Krista. I have supervised a number of, of creative PhDs, and I think it's important that we do note that many of them have been co-supervisions. And I think that very often the thinking behind the co-supervisions or the, the supervisory team, and this perhaps is not only at PhD level, but also at MAFA level, is that there's some really important conversations that start to take place across various fields. And I think that's really necessary. I think that the PhD in creative work is one that you will have experienced this again and again, but necessarily is something that is interdisciplinary. It crosses into other disciplines as a matter of necessity. An example would be a number of students that have worked on projects where they are developing a practice, but they are also interested in pedagogies but also interested in the amazing things that are happening in neurosciences and neuropsychology, areas that I don't have much expertise in. So that'd be one example where one would need to, if not to bring in a co-supervisor, but to ensure that there is a conversation that is happening that allows for that expertise to inform the project. But I think that one of the most perhaps interesting ones has been, in fact, there's been a number of PhDs where there's been someone from anthropology present with the creative research. The example I'm thinking about is Audrey Salmon's PhD, where there was a co-supervisor from anthropology and another co-supervisor from film and television who introduced some very interesting theoretical material, but also was able to speak very specifically to the video work that Audrey produced. You know, I think going back to the thinking around multilateralism and multimodality, I think that I've always thought about supervision as this very intense pedagogical moment. So I think about it as a teaching and learning moment, and I'm sure all supervisors do that. But I think that the pedagogical holders that I've perhaps not developed, but I've accessed from multiliteracy and multimodality have been really important. And now I think it's worth noting these pedagogical holders. And it's not a linear framework or anything like that. Some of these things will happen simultaneously. 
But I think it does speak to a way of thinking about what might happen in a supervisory process. The first pedagogical holder is what is known as situated practice, where the idea is that the student, the learner, is able to access what they bring and to have that present in the teaching and learning situation. The second is what is referred to as overt instruction, where the teacher or the lecturer or the supervisor brings something to that conversation. The third pedagogical holder would be critical framing, where one is able to step back and register some kind of critical distance from the project. And the fourth one would be what is referred to as transformed practice, where these ideas are owned and go into the world. Now, I'm simplifying them quite considerably, but there's something about those pedagogical holders that are still present for me in that supervisory process. For me, one of the key things in that moment of situated practice, and I know that there are some supervisors and some colleagues who perhaps don't feel this as strongly as I do, but to emphasize the emergent quality of the creative research, the PhD in creative work, what we do in this space, and to create a holding space for this emergence. Stel Barrett and Barbara Bolt write about this in their, I think it's a 2005-2006 publication, but they emphasize this notion of the emergent, the interdisciplinary, and how the space is one of subjectivities. So that sense of creating a holding space where the student and the co-supervisors are allowed to be in a conversation and one of my co-supervisors remarked late last year about the experience. And I think the remark was a really interesting one, is how we were able to arrive at three supervisors plus the PhD student, a space um, that was hopefully radically democratic in the manner in which we were able to work. So, you know, that would be another thing that I would be aspiring to in this co-supervisory space with the student. I think there's a lot more that I could say there. I think that the point that Barbara Bolt makes, and I think Sarat Maharaj makes around how in creative research, the methodology, just as much as one is drawing on a repertoire of moves that might be located in one's own practice and in other practices, but very often the methodology that we arrive at in the creative research is one that is very specific, very unique to that moment. So that is another thing that I try and emphasize in those early stages and throughout the process. Barbara Bolt, I was sitting in one of her online lectures last week, and she was saying that very often creative work, PhDs, the first two years are a bit like mud. And that it's only through that engagement with those emergent interdisciplinary subjective qualities that clarities start to emerge. Now, I'm not sure if that's always true, but I think that does, to some extent, describe the space that one is working through in the creative work process. David, sadly, I think we've come to the end of our time, but... There's clearly much more for us to discuss. This has been really interesting excursion into you know, where you've come from and just starting to open up these challenges that you've been engaging with in your own practice as a supervisor of creative research and artist yourself working in this very transcendent <laughs> interdisciplinary space. So 
let's definitely make an appointment to carry on the conversation. And we haven't even touched on developments such as ARAC, which I, I also really would like to talk to you about. And I think are a further stage in your thinking and your engagements around pedagogy and alternative ways of approaching art and the teaching or the transmission of art thinking, art sensibility. So we'll have to pick up this conversation again in the near future. Christo, that'd be great. I'll do that with pleasure. Thanks again for the opportunity and let's make another time. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Chair of Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, David Andrew, an Associate Professor and previous Head of the Department of Fine Arts in the Witt School of Arts. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.